Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 124, Elementary, Dear Data. Good day, fine people of the internet, and welcome into another rousing adventure, the audio play we call Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, donning the role of host, I humbly submit myself, John Champion. And I, perhaps the only foil who could best Mr. Champion, also acting as host, Professor Ken Ray. And I should warn you, I've disabled the fail-safe protocols for this episode. Listen at your peril. We meet again, Professor Ray. For the first time, for the last time, again we meet. Again. Today! Elementary, dear Data. And before we get to that, we would love to have you contact us, please. Many ways you can do that. Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, where the handle is Mission Log Pod. You can call us at 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Any information that you send to us should please include your address, your social security number, any other pertinent information about you. I won't do anything bad with it, I swear. Also, you can check out our website. That would be fantastic. We have discovered documents there and all kinds of other fun stuff. MissionLogPodcast.com And we have two other places that we would like for you to check out online. Uh, TrekMovie.com carries Mission Log, which we are very happy about. And TrekFM, which you can find at Trek.FM. I don't remember if I mentioned we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. But again, all that personal information. We're not going to do anything, you know, nefarious or evil or bad with it or anything <laughs> is that is that all it takes ken to, am, to I, I uh, unleash a nefarious plan you just say give me this don't worry you won't do anything wrong with it i think so yeah I, it occurs okay. to me as you know as the further we go into this i would probably make a terrible criminal mastermind mm-hmm. wow well, no well, argument if you at tell all the huh? plans yeah <laughs> if you tell the plan you would be a terrible criminal i totally mastermind. hid the plan i didn't tell people what i was going to do with their personal information i just asked for it please well, okay. with you which did. i am going to do nothing i think i've been very upfront about my plan as far as people know <laughs> i'll tell you what i'm going to work on my evil plan okay while you work on educating people on the trivia stuff jolly good all right. Today's episode, <laughs> Elementary Dear Data, was written by Brian Allen Lane. It was directed by Rob Bowman, and it was nominated for two Emmys, uh, one for art direction and one for costuming. I think uh, well-deserved on both of those. Um, now, Ken, you know that I've had fun since we started Mission Log talking about the other ships that we encounter in Mission Log, some of them with real-life counterparts. And, of course, in this one, we talk about the Starship Victory, but we also talk about and we see a model of the HMS Victory. Um, the HMS Victory was launched in 1765. It was, of course, Lord Admiral Nelson's ship. And uh, the most important battle that the HMS Victory saw was the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. Um at that battle, the Royal Navy, numbering about 27 ships, held off the French and Spanish navies, numbering 33 ships in a decisive victory. And Nelson was shot and uh, died late in the afternoon of October 21st during the battle. Uh, but of course, the Brits were victorious. Now, the victory itself was restored many times over and to this day, it is the oldest commissioned naval ship. She sits in dry dock in Portsmouth, England. Wait a minute. The UK's oldest commissioned naval ship or the world's? Because isn't the Constitution still technically a commissioned ship? Well, you know, it's interesting. Yes, the the Constitution is a commissioned ship, mm -hmm. um, though she is younger and she is floating now, the Victory is an older ship, and she is in dry dock. So um, there, is, there, there is a little bit of, uh, of sway given there as to who can actually claim rights to be the oldest this or the oldest that. Yeah, because the Constitution isn't just floating. They actually I, – I used to work uh, in the Charlestown Navy Yard. Mm -hmm. I, honestly, luckiest job ever. I think it was my first real radio job, and I ended up mm -hmm. uh, going up to becoming operations director of that station. 
Mm-hmm. And 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 so my office, my first office, my only actual office that I've ever had, had a view of the Charlestown Navy Yard. Mm, cool. And it was one cool. of the anniversaries of the Constitution. So they were running it back and forth like a water taxi. I mean, it was just, it was just <laughs> constantly in and out and in and out of the harbor. Um, so yeah, the, none of this dry dock shenanigans. I'm just saying it's not it's uh, not just floating. I mean, it's actually she's seaworthy. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know if you'd uh, actually stand up to a battle today. Well, that, that would be a little rough. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that could be bad. Times have changed. Anyway, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I, but I no, but, but yeah, it, it, it is a good point. And that's one of those things where we, you know, just depending on who's making the claim, they, they can make the claim one way or the other. But yeah, the Constitution is a younger ship, but she is the oldest commissioned warship still afloat still actually on the water. Um, but yeah, uh, but the Victory is kind of a, a fantastic ship. And I, I, I again, it was one of these personal indulgences that I get to make during trivia uh, because I remember very well visiting the Victory and I have a little souvenir that is uh, a piece of wooden deck that during the restoration, some of the pieces that weren't being reused, you could buy that. And then I had a, a pewter model of the Victory on it. So um, I remember it very well from my childhood visiting that ship. Now, of course, the other thing that um, elementary dear data references very heavily, plays upon and centers around very heavily is the Sherlock Holmes stories by Arthur Conan Doyle. And uh, there were multiple of his short stories referenced in this show. Um, in particular, in particular, the final problem introduced the character of Moriarty and it was Doyle's, I found this so interesting, his fourth favorite of his home <laughs> stories. He was, he was kind of particular, you know. How, how uh, long is that list? Uh, twelve. He, he made a list of his twelve favorite, or there are yes. only twelve? Really? No, he made a list of his twelve favorite, <laughs> <That's awesome>. and <laughs> the final problem was his fourth favorite. Um, when we're done in like yeah. 13 years, we should make a list of our 17 favorite mission logs. Oh, I think that's good. Yeah, good or, idea. Or maybe the 23. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why just, not? just some number. Yeah. Um, now, Holmes was supposed to be dead in the final problem. Uh, why, why not? It's final, right? And uh, it, it just comes down to Doyle being tired of writing about Sherlock Holmes. But like another popular franchise we know, the, uh, the letter writing campaign from desperate fans encouraged more. Uh, so the next story was a prequel, and in the next next story, he was finally revived. Um, you just can't keep a good character dead for long, as we know. Um, with this particular episode of Star Trek, there was a copyright issue. Uh, the Doyle estate was flattered by the episode, but Paramount thought they were covered under parody. And uh, the Doyle estate didn't see it that way. So they eventually negotiated for a fee to use the characters. And, you know, once they got that settled, it means that we may just see Holmes again in Star Trek sometime way in the future. We'll have to wait and see. Um, The sets for this episode cost so much that an entire day was actually cut out of the schedule in order to make up at least a part of that cost. This did not make director Rob Bowman very happy. But remember how I mentioned before, Ken, that they could kind of borrow from other episodes to then blow a lot of budget on a big episode. And in this episode, we had a lot of big practical sets and a lot of costuming. They did uh, save a little bit of money on, oh, on that? one thing that I thought was actually it was fascinating. Sometimes when you see the holodeck you know, start to fall apart, they'll sort of uh, like green screen or overlay um, you know, that grid. Mm-hmm. pattern right mm-hmm. I, i'm pretty sure and i didn't look this up but just watching it a few times they basically just projected the grid pattern onto the set that they had built yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. which which was interesting because i mean it, it it gave you the uh the idea that okay well it's still there but it's starting to fall apart but then also it had to save like a boatload of quatlos <laughs> right, right. Rather than okay, well, let's paint that green because we're gonna like, have it be in and be out. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. No, let's just let shine a light on that. Okay, yeah. Okay. Now flicker it. I think we got it. <laughs> <laughs> it looked. It looked really good. It, it was, was really great. Convincing to yeah. do that kind of effect. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Um, Daniel Davis played Moriarty, and uh, he has worked mostly in TV as a regular on such shows as Texas and The Nanny. I, I think, you know, a lot of people would know him from that. And uh, he had a recurring bit on Dynasty, and also he has just done a ton of voiceover work in animation and gaming. Um, Alan Shearman played Lestrade, and uh, also a very busy TV and voiceover actor, and uh, kind of a weird science fiction cross over uh, that he parodied science fiction in the movie 2001 a space travesty starring leslie nielsen he appeared in that and he wrote it so um if you are so inclined to check out that movie <laughs> uh dear inspector lestrade from this episode wrote that and um can there is also uh, an Ensign Clancy in here, mm-hmm. played by some actress called Elizabeth? Uh, I'm sorry, Anne Elizabeth Ramsey. No, you can call her Anne Elizabeth Ramsey if you want to. I call her the Elizabeth Ramsey. Oh, okay. Okay, it's actually nerve. It's actually Anne. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's that's like one of my total Hollywood crushes. Wow. wow. I know it's weird. It's I was a mad about you fan, and she played mm-hmm. sort of the quirky, wacky sister. Uh, to the Helen Hunt character on Mad About You. Right. And if there's anybody I'm going for, it's the quirky wacky. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, she was just great. She was also in that that um, that that absolute travesty of a mockery of a movie, uh, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. Oh. oh. And um, yeah, a bunch of other stuff. I mean, she turns up. She's not, she's never been leading lady, I don't think. But uh, But yeah, I'm just always... Oh, yeah, I'm just always so happy when I see her. And and, fantastic, too, that we got this name character who I'm pretty sure is never going to be on the show again, but did not meet an untimely demise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lucky, right? Somebody should maybe write fan fiction about Ensign Clancy for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they know how to reach this, Ken. I guess they Um, do. Hey, and there was an additional scene near the end of this episode uh, that got cut out. So we will talk about that later today Jordy gets to live vicariously through homes or is it watson who lives vicariously through data let's see if ken and john can sort this out prologue the enterprise is meeting with the starship victory but the enterprise is way early well perhaps data and Jordy could play on the holodeck that almost never leads to trouble Act 1. Data and Geordi will live one of Data's fantasies, according to Geordi. He will be Dr. Watson to Data's Sherlock Holmes. Data instructs the holodeck to choose at random a Sherlock Holmes adventure written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle for him to solve. After exploring 221B Baker Street, Inspector Lestrade comes to Holmes with a mystery, which Data as Holmes solves in 30 seconds or less. Out of nowhere, Geordi storms out of the holodeck saying he is done. In 10-4, Geordi explains his outburst. If Data knows what's going to happen, there's no mystery. No mystery, no game. No game, no fun. The mystery is what Geordi was looking forward to. Trying to solve the mystery was where the fun was supposed to be. Data doesn't get it, which causes an eavesdropping Dr. Pulaski to laugh. Of course Data doesn't get why trying to solve a mystery would be fun. Data doesn't get the idea of trying to solve, in her opinion. He knows or he doesn't, and he can't make the intuitive leaps required to solve. He doesn't get the soul. He learns by rote. He couldn't solve a Holmes mystery he hadn't read. Data agrees, but only because he's read them all. He does, however, have an idea. He'll challenge the holodeck to create a Holmes mystery he hasn't read and prove Pulaski wrong. And he'll have her along as a witness. Act 2. The computer has new instruction. Create a Sherlock Holmes type mystery, but not an actual according to Doyle mystery. But the computer is not so smart. Rather than writing a new story, it simply splices together elements of a couple of different Holmes stories. Data puts them together in under 35 seconds. Pulaski calls fraud. Data doesn't see why. He figured out a previously unwritten mystery through deductive reasoning. Pulaski's done talking to Data and addresses Geordi. Inspiration, original thought, all the true strengths of Holmes. It's not possible for our friend. Well, at least she calls Data friend. Though she follows that by saying his circuits would simply melt if faced with the true mystery. Geordi seems to take Pulaski's assertions more personally than does Data. He calls for a computer arch, which one of the non-player characters, NPCs, on the holodeck seems to notice. 
Determined to prove Pulaski wrong, Jordy instructs the computer to, in the Holmesian style, create a mystery to confound data with an opponent that has the ability to defeat him. Create an adversary capable of defeating data. On the bridge, Lieutenant Worf detects an odd surge of power. That's gone now. Probably nothing. The NPC that had been clocking Geordi feels... strange. Like a new man. He saw Geordi call for the arch and... Oh, calling for the arch works for him, too. Accidentally asking what it is, the computer tells the NPC, one Professor Moriarty, that the arch gives him computer control. Does he want to give commands? Hmm, not now. He needs some information. Elsewhere, Holmes and Watson are waiting for a mystery. A scream, and they found it. Pulaski is gone. Data Holmes deduces that she's been abducted. Act 3. In pursuit of Pulaski and her captors, Data talks Geordi through how he figured out what was going on. Bottom line, he figured it out. It's not pieces and parts of another Holmes story. The holodeck tries to distract Data with a murder, but that's not the mystery he's there to solve. Geordi tries to solve the murder. Data says he's wrong. He solves it, but again, that is not the mystery with which he is concerned. He spots Moriarty clocking them and follows. He also recognizes Moriarty as Moriarty. Geordi is excited. He finally gets that Data doesn't know what's going to happen next. After a bit of poking around, Data and Geordi find the secret lair of Moriarty. He welcomes Holmes, but not Holmes. And Watson, but not Watson. Geordi's confused that Moriarty knows that they are not who they're supposed to be. Meanwhile, Data has lost a bit of his playfulness. He asks where Dr. Pulaski is. Moriarty says she's there, and no, he's not hurt her though he will if he has to. No, she hasn't talked, though he's read much from her expressions and her silence. Here's the thing. I'm less interested in that than I am. What's going on? I know you're not Holmes and Watson. I know there's a great power called computer, wiser than the Oracle at Delphi. My mind is so big and on the verge of getting bigger. Moriarty then calls for the arch to prove his point. Also, it described for me this... Can you tell me about this? Moriarty hands Data a piece of paper, which freaks Data out. He leaves Moriarty's lair with Geordi following quickly behind. Calling for an exit, Data tells the computer to shut down the holodeck. It tells him that access is denied. Override protocol has been initiated. Data says they have to see the captain. Data finally shows Geordi the piece of paper, which freaks Geordi out. Moriarty has drawn a picture of the Enterprise. Also, Moriarty has control of the holodeck, which means he has control of the computer. And Dr. Pulaski is in grave danger. Act 4. In the captain's ready room, Picard is looking at Moriarty's drawing of the Enterprise. He asks the computer who initiated the holodeck's override protocol. The computer says it was Geordi. Geordi doesn't think so. Walking through everything that happened for Picard, though, they hit on the problem. Geordi didn't tell the computer to come up with an opponent that could beat Sherlock Holmes. He told the computer to come up with an opponent that could beat Data. Picard says a dirty word. And that's before he knew Moriarty had access to the ship's computer. So he can learn all sorts of things given time. Worf says he could lead an extraction team to the holodeck to get Dr. Pulaski, though Data says that would probably put her in more danger, because the mortality failsafe has probably been overridden as well. The computer confirms that Pulaski is fine right now, though. Riker asks about sort of physically scrubbing the holodeck. Geordi says he could do it, but it would also physically scrub Pulaski. Like rubber out. To give you an idea of how serious this is getting, Troy is beginning to sense Moriarty. To put a point on how serious it's getting, that violent shaking felt all over the Enterprise was control of the ship being transferred briefly to Holodeck 2, home of Moriarty. Speaking of Moriarty, he and Dr. Pulaski are having scones and tea. And a pleasant conversation. In fact, he's pleased that she's pleased. Which they both find odd. So, is it true we're on a spaceship? Pulaski says she doesn't know what he's talking about. He shows her that he knows about the computer and can call for an arch. He can't quite get control of everything, but he's working on it. Pulaski keeps playing dumb, but Moriarty's not buying Fine, then. She'd like to go now, please. Yeah, says Moriarty. That would be cool, but we need to wait here for Captain Jean-Luc Picard. 
he'll be coming for you. Moriarty is correct, of course. Picard and Data are on their way. Act 5. Holographic London is falling down, seemingly coming apart as Moriarty tries to alter the program. After nearly getting killed by a mugger, Picard and Data make their way to Moriarty's lair. Pulaski says she's fine, except for being crammed full of crumpets. Moriarty says he's civilized but serious, and gives the Enterprise another good shake to prove it. Picard lays it on the table for Moriarty. He was made to defeat Holmes. Win or lose when the game is over, it's over. Moriarty will cease to be. Yay, says Data Holmes. You win! Moriarty says it's more than that now, Data. Oh yeah, I called you Data. I'm awake now. I understand. I'm conscious. I can wreck this ship. I have power. What do you want? asks Picard. The same thing you want. To continue to exist. Moriarty gets that he's a holographic image and that he cannot leave the holodeck. But he wants to. He's not the bad guy Geordi created. He thinks, therefore he is. He is alive. But Picard makes him understand. There's nothing they can do. Moriarty gets it. He thanks Pulaski for her company. He calls for the arch. He cancels the override protocol and tells Picard and his people that they are free to go. Picard tells Moriarty that they will save him, save his program, and hopefully bring him back when he can leave the holodeck. The end. Well done! You got a crumpet! Yeah, they switch from scones to crumpets. I will tell you, have you ever had a crumpet? Oh, sure, I love a crumpet. Okay, yeah, see, I, yeah. I actually have crumpets rather regularly. Yeah. Now, given my, given my choice of the two, like which am I going to be stuffed with? Mm-hmm. Scones every day. Yeah. The problem yeah, is scones yeah. are fattening. <laughs> yeah. Crumpets are actually, uh, they're actually sort of a light breakfast fare or a light, well, on their a light own. snacking fare. But if you take that crumpet and you slather it in butter and jam, as I do. Mm. Well, then, don't, don't slather it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I love a crumpet. They're kind of spongy and you can get them kind of crisp on the outside. A yeah. crumpet is a great thing. Yeah. The weird thing is you say crumpet and it's like, oh, you're highfalutin and hoity-toity. But, you know, if you say what it actually is, they're griddle cakes. But yeah. if you say griddle cake, then you know, you expect people to kick off their shoes and you know, hear the banjo playing Deliverance in the background because griddle well, that, cake griddle cake sounds you know like totally um, plebeian. <laughs> and that, yet, that's that, that's where you and I are from. That, yeah. that's, that, that, that's our people. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So you say griddle cake, and I know exactly what you're talking about. You say crumpet, and you know, but they're the same thing. Yeah. Yes. Right. Epicureans today will be back after this. <laughs> so, I, first of all, I am surprised that nobody on board just rolled their eyes. Oh, the holodeck again. Like, we have to have that moment in the conference room. We got to explain it's broken again. <laughs> it's hurt or is about to hurt somebody again. And Captain yeah. Picard just doesn't put up police tape around every holodeck. Oh, no. he's just he's looking for an excuse. He's looking mm-hmm. for an excuse to play dress up. Seriously, when 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 they figure out what's going on and Picard, because mm-hmm. there's been no message from Moriarty that he wants to talk to the captain or anything, right? Mm-hmm. There are any mm-hmm. number of people, especially if you think the mortality fail safes are done. There's any number of people that you should send in. Hey, how about sending in the Uber feeling Troy? That might be a good person <laughs> to go in. Or how right. about the you know the second in command so that we leave you know command. Well, where do we want to leave him? How about in command? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but I mean, you know, the second he hears his thing in the holodeck, oh, what am I dressing up as this week? Okay. Yeah, there, the- there was also that moment in the back of Picard's head where he thought, mm, and it's, it's only Dr. Pulaski who's trapped in the holodeck, and she doesn't have any family on board. Oh, okay. Stop that. He would never leave a, <laughs> he would never leave a doctor behind. No, no, he wouldn't. So, um, a couple of other things, I, you know, Picard, not only is he, like you said, sort of champing at the bit to get in, but I mean, he's a really good sport about it all. Like he could have legitimately just thrown a ton of security crew in there, yes. but he's he, no, no, no. He's ready to get into costume. He's like, no, no, no. We, we, I'll go down there and I'm going to help solve this problem. But first, how about a costume? Yes. Yes. Because because, yeah. you know, uh, what's his name? Data says, I'll I'll get in my uniform. And Picard's mm-hmm. like, no, 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 mister. <laughs> I'm going to wardrobe. 
Can I mm-hmm. can I go ahead and just uh, this is that thing that we always hate when people do it. And the answer to the question is because then the episode would have been shorter and we wouldn't gotten to the meat of it. But could they not sure. lock a transporter on the Pulaski? Right, right. Yeah, that's I mean, my question because I mean they're they're immediately thinking, okay, well, how do we beat this guy? I'm like, well, what do you care about beating this guy? If you had somebody down on the planet and they had a gun aimed at Pulaski, right, you would lock in and and beam her out, right. But inside the ship, oh no, 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 that's far too close <laughs> here's the problem with you even bringing that up because we'll get 50 emails saying well there, there's a, a thing and the holodeck does this and it can't do that and you can't beam it out because yeah. you know but yes i i get what you Cause, mean because you know then here's the other question mm-hmm. why not just be moriarty out oh, if we're mm-hmm. assuming that you're not actually taking the exact same matter and moving right. it from point A to point B, but you're taking matter and you know taking it apart and then reconstructing it someplace else, yeah, out, out of other matter, right? Beam them out. Well, we do have listeners <laughs> saying, but but no, but you're taking apart matter and you're moving that matter and reconstructing that matter. Yeah, but I don't think you are because I mean that's what the pattern buffer has always proved to us, right? Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. a pattern. You're just reconstructing right. a pattern, right? I'm I'm not I'm just. I know. I'm not. I know. I, I'd say, hey, uh, direct all emails. <laughs> but the other thing that you could have expected is a shot of Jordy and Wesley, who is not in this episode, in the hallway outside the holodeck using the little holodeck uh, tool thing that they used to fix the holodeck the last time. Yes. That's you know, like, oh, I'm just going to dig through and I'm going to look for the thing that makes Moriarty bad or makes him able to take over the arch and take that thing out. Yeah. So now we can control the arch. But no, but we can't do that because this is not that episode. No, it is not. No, no. Um, interesting. You mentioned that uh, Picard swears said in a, French. Said a dirty word. Yeah. Oh, I did. did. I didn't say it was in French, but it was. Yeah, it, it was in French. And this is the second time now that he's done that. Yes. And, and it's interesting to me that uh, sometimes Picard is French mm-hmm. and sometimes he's English. Yes. <laughs> you know, and um, so he says the French word and we have heard him talk about France before and he spent time in Paris on the holodeck before. Yeah. Uh, but boy, is he just right at home in old London. Yes. Um, he even knows the folklore of old London. And I, I, you know, the only answer is it really is just that matter of the UK expanding and... <laughs> You know, the Empire <laughs> somehow absorbed France in the future. There, there is no, as of the recording now, there is no more British Empire. Yeah. You know, you, you have England, uh, you have the UK, you, you have England, Wales, uh, part of Ireland and Scotland. Mm-hmm. We almost didn't have Scotland, <laughs> you know. But now we just have to assume in the future, ah, let, let's just take France back. Oh, come on. I mean, it's okay. okay here's the thing. So you're talking about the Tuppence, right? Well, yeah, that and he he knows the like he walks into that and he's like a, a guy who went back home for the holidays. Yeah, he's like he, he knows the 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 custom. He's he's sort of fascinated by it all, which who wouldn't be? I'm pretty but. sure it's because Picard likes to play dress up. Well, he does. We know that. <laughs> if yeah. you're talking, if you're talking though about the Tuppence thing, I mean that's just. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we have we have the same thing here in the states. It, you know, see a penny, pick it up all day long. You'll have good luck. I mean, that's pretty much it. I'm guessing they, in just about every culture, finding a coin on the ground is good luck. <laughs> they don't even know what money is. If you ask some of us, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so. Two pence. Yeah, that's. They, they they don't even know what countries are. If you ask some of them, that's true. So yeah, if you talked about being—is it—is it the smoke? Is that what the, is that what one of the nicknames for London? Right? Was it? I believe so. Yeah, I believe yeah. it is. If I'm wrong, somebody will write in and say. But if you'd started talking about being in the smoke, I would have been like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, he's not French. Right, right. But it, it is fun though that it, his his nationality sort of has morphed a little bit because everybody mentions, you know, he's the French captain with the English Shakespearean accent, and. um and now he gets to just sort of let his cultural identity slide a little bit. So I'm just going to say that, uh, yeah, that's what happened. I'm going to say the British Empire finally became an empire again. I don't know. You could also say, though, it's just, you know, the EU thing finally took. Mm, yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> the Brits were the last holdout. Maybe yeah. that's it. Maybe that's yeah. it. Um, I, I mentioned that uh, there was a bit of trivia that I wanted to save. Yes. Because... Um, 
it, it is sort of integral to the plot here and then to what happens at the end of the story. So we have a piece of paper, Ken, mm-hmm. created in the holodeck and I, leaving the holodeck. I'm glad you're talking about this because I actually had a note on it. Yeah. Now, okay, good. Okay, here's the thing, though. We know that that kind of thing can happen because uh, didn't did Picard get hit by a snowball? Yeah. Coming out of the holodeck. You sure did. So right. little bits of matter can go. Uh, if you're Cyrus Redblock? Yep, yep. Not wow. Red Jack. Is yeah. that really his name, Redblock? Cyrus Redblock, really? Ver- I'm impressed. I need $5 from you next time we see each other. Just <laughs> for getting it. that. Just, you, it doesn't yeah. have to be a real $5. If you want to draw a picture of it, that would actually be apropos for the discussion that we're having That'd be here. perfect, yeah. So if you're a Cyrus Redblock, you, you can't leave the holodeck. And certainly if you're a Moriarty, you can't leave the holodeck. But if you're a snowball or a piece of paper, you apparently can. Aha, but there is an alternate ending. Okay, so, well, here's the thing. So we have a piece of paper created in the holodeck and it leaves the holodeck. Yes. And we know that the fail safes aren't working. Right. So Picard actually, in this alternate version, with the scene missing, Picard assumes that Moriarty can leave the holodeck, unlike the guys from The Big Goodbye. And he tricks Moriarty. So that conversation where Picard basically says, look, um, if you leave, you won't exist anymore because this is a holodeck and you're a creation and blah, blah, blah. The next scene after that would have been Picard saying, well, look, this piece of paper proves that that is wrong. Moriarty could have left because here are these things that exist outside the holodeck, even though even though I know what you're going to say, but we had a snowball and a thing and a hit him in the face and blah, blah, blah. Well, no, in this episode, had that dialogue stayed behind, it would have meant that Picard actually tricked Moriarty. He lied to Moriarty about his existence beyond the holodeck and Gene and others in the staff nixed that scene because they thought it would have made Picard look like a liar, which he would have been. Which he would have been, absolutely. And they didn't want that that for Picard. Yeah, that's one of those those things, like, so you know how uh, Brazil ends differently on television than it actually ended in the movies? mm -hmm. Or how there are, like, what, like 27 different endings for Blade Runner, I think? (laughs) Right, right, yeah. There are some endings that completely change the meaning of the episode and the the import of the episode. Yeah. That ending would would have killed this episode in a lot of ways so mm-hmm. good on them for uh, for showing that the door with his newfound goodness i think moriarty should go into music i've written his first song for him it goes like this moriarty i like to party i don't cause trouble i don't bother nobody i'm just some evil genius on the mic, and when I rock up on the mic, I rock the mic, right? So every now and then, um, Jordy will pop out with something weird. Like, <laughs> somebody mentioned last week the whole thing about when they thought they had destroyed the Romulan ship, and Jordy was like, yeah! Right. right. That was kind of weird. Yeah. Inoffensive. Weird, but not offensive. Mm-hmm. Jordy offended me a couple of times in this episode. Ah, Ken. I know. I, I, I actually, I, I, I have greater issue with him in this episode than I think I do any other character. And it's not like I'm looking to square off with a character in each episode. But there mm-hmm. were just, there were things that happened that I was like, I don't know how I like that. Or I don't know how I feel about that. Um, it's human nature to love what we don't have, says Jordy. Mm-hmm. Eh, I don't like it. <laughs> that may be true. I don't know if that's true or not, but, but you know, you've got this android sitting there yeah. who all he ever wants to do is be a real live boy. <laughs> right. And to tell him, well, you know, then you're closer than you're ever going to be because you're never going to get that thing. And the most human thing is to want what you don't have or to love <laughs> what you don't have. And right. this goes honestly back to our, goes back to a discussion that we've had a billion times. Yeah. Um, Eh, maybe a few less than a billion. It only feels like a billion. Right. I really did not like his summation of, oh, that's, that, that's being human. Yeah, there's something you want. Man, it's really, it, that's probably the best thing. Just stay in that state of wanting it as opposed to actually, you know, having it. <laughs> Bothered me. 
Okay, yeah. I'm sure it did. Yeah. I, I, I'm positive that it did. Yes. Now, I, I will say I was also offended by Jordy's response in Act 1 to Data solving the mystery that was set before him. Uh, Data, who is Data, right? Yeah. Jordy says it is one of Data's dreams to be Sherlock Holmes. Jordy mm-hmm. says that. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if that's actually one of Data's dreams or not, and certainly Data seems to be having a good time, but how do we know Data's just not doing what was expected of him by Jordy? Jordy gets really upset that it wasn't as much fun for Jordy as Jordy thought it was going to be. And he storms off like oh, he, he storms off in, in honestly a, a fairly petulant way. And later he says he's not mad at Data about it. But I'm trying to figure out like if any part of this actually had anything to do with Data at all as far as Jordy was concerned. And I mentioned in the recap when Velasky is like, you're just, you know, zeros and ones, as if she's not. Mm-hmm. You're just zeros and ones, and you'll never get. And, you know, the more that happens, Data's like, mm, I don't think so. And she's like, well, no, but it's true. And he's like, mm, no, but I disagree. Jordy, on the other hand, is about to pop a vein. I mean, he is just so angry uh, on, well, theoretically on Data's behalf, but it, it, it felt like Jordy needed to spend a little bit more time with Jordy. <laughs> <laughs> in this episode, because of course Data is going to solve the Holmes mystery immediately. He's read it, and it's not even a matter of, oh, how did that one go again? I can't remember. Well, of course he can, because he's Data. Well, I, I'm much more on the same page with you on on this criticism of Geordie here, right. for sure, because I, I thought his reaction was childish, and it, it just him storming off, it, it, it really... It didn't seem like him because we see this friendship forming between him and Data, but also some understanding of what Data is like. Yes. So this is to be expected. And and we'll get back to Pulaski. And, and again, I, I, I'm sure that for as long as we're covering season two, there will be this constant conversation that I'm having with our listeners about the pros and cons of Pulaski. Mm-hmm. But Pulaski seems to have a much more reasoned approach to the whole thing. She She's sort of saying to, to Jordy, well, yeah, of course, you, you're trying to make data be something that he is not. This is how data is programmed. So let let's test this let's check it out let's not just storm off and pout in our room yeah the weird thing is i mean pulaski definitely uh, seems to be underselling data although what's interesting is she's not proven wrong by the end of this episode i yes i agree with you there yeah. um she seems to be underselling data quite a bit uh jordy mm-hmm. on the other hand is overselling data quite a bit he's right. projecting a bit it seems to me or maybe he's trying to push data further along than data is yeah. And he, and, but he gets frustrated when Data is who Data is as opposed to who Jordy wants him to be. Yeah. Which struck me as kind of um, weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly the right word for it. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> um, you validate me, and I appreciate that. <laughs> I get money off for parking for this show, right? There you go, yeah. Right. Um, we, uh, we got a great tweet uh, from one of our listeners, Mark, who um, who said, I love this. He, he said, we went from the epistemological last week and Where Silence Has Lease to the ontological this week with Elementary Dear Data. And I thought, man, that that is just a mouthful to cover in less than 140 characters. So, uh, so good job, Mark, on on fitting a whole philosophical can of worms into a single tweet. But let's talk about that just a little bit, because essentially last week we were dealing with the idea of how we know what with Nagila messing up our perception of what it means to know something. Mm-hmm. He's constantly resetting our perceptions. So how do we know that we know things, especially with a guy like Nagila messing us up, purposely messing us up. And uh, this week we're taking a look at what exists in the world, you know, what actually exists and what is existence from our perspective and from Moriarty's perspective. And this is sort of the ontological crisis for Moriarty. How can he know the nature of the universe and what will happen to him if his program is halted or terminated. We talked about that in The Big Goodbye because it was just that one line from Dixon Hill's friend saying, so look, I, I got a wife and kids back home. What happens to me? What happens to them? Mm-hmm. Um, which was pretty profound 
for an episode that was just like, hey, let's go have a good time in the 1940s. Right. And here we have it again, something pretty profound for, hey, let's go have a good time in 19th century London. Um, so it was a, a pretty great moment. And an episode that's full of great moments. You know, the, this whole thing is one of those like late night mind uh, how have we said it before, Ken? A, a mind, mind fornication, mind, mind bleepery, I believe. Mind bleepery, mind, mind, mind bendery, and it's like, you know, sort of like, hey, man, what if we, what if we're all just hooked up to the Matrix? We'd never know. And you could continue to go down that rabbit hole, but I think at some point you have to decide on a certain set of facts in order to do any kind of study of the world around you. Because that whole thing is a non-falsifiable proposition. What's interesting, though, is that from Moriarty's perspective, this is actually a falsifiable proposition because he's got the arch Mm -hmm. and he's got these strangers who show up (laughs) and you could just have the computer create a holographic object or allow him to walk out into the hallway or maybe take another object out into the hallway that could disappear. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, I'm because you just hit on something. Why didn't they just, you know, make a recreation of the rest of the Enterprise for, mm-hmm. for him to walk around in? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, then you're using a lot of energy and data to do that. Not data, data, but data from the computer to <laughs> do that. Data, data, but go ahead. <laughs> well, no, you're not using any more than you're using to create old, you know, foggy London town, though. Right, but I imagine to keep it running all the time. Well, no, but I mean, just to give him an idea. Oh, just for that moment. Yeah, why yeah, not? Yeah, 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 yeah. Why not? I mean, why not let him see something outside of what he knows? He knows that there's more than he's seen, so why not let him see what it's like? But maybe we don't trust Moriarty anymore, and we just think, okay, the more information we give him, like, remember what happened when we let, oh, you know, Khan or Gary Mitchell read all the technical readouts yeah, from the, show you the know. Klingons how to take over the uh, battle bridge. See, exactly. Yeah. You let him do that, you well, know. Well, give him an example, though. Give him a taste. Mm-hmm. Take him to Deep Space 86. You, you could literally have the computer, if the fail-safes are off and if control is returned, you literally have the computer dematerialize and rematerialize Moriarty five feet away. Okay. And, and Picard can say, like, look what I just did. I, I can do I can tell the computer to do that to you. I don't see why that's any fun though. No, I'm saying why not I mean yeah. once they make peace with Moriarty at the end of it, once mm-hmm. once we know that Moriarty is no longer going to try to kill them, why not give him a reward instead of the promise of eh, maybe someday. Well, maybe we don't get the. Maybe we don't know that that piece is a lasting piece. You know, I mean, he, he is Moriarty. <laughs> we after know all. that he we can designed... now. We know that we can now turn him up. Oh, don't even do the what he was designed for thing though, because he beats his programming. He beats what's. I'm sorry. Am I skipping ahead? Well, no, I, I don't think. Well, not really, because here, here's, I guess, sort of the the question about Moriarty. Then, I mean, we get this peek into. What could be a really serious power and problem mm-hmm. with the Enterprise computer? It's creating self-aware characters left and right, or, or at least characters that act self-aware. And at that point, what's the difference anyway? Yeah. You know, <laughs> no one programmed the Enterprise computer from the last time with some kind of laws of robotics to keep it from killing. You know what, you know what this episode reminded me of? What's that? Which is the cartoon where, where Kirk is walking around with Kirk as a jerk? Oh, oh, uh, the Practical Joker. The yeah. Practical Joker. Yeah, yeah. Remember that I, I sort of felt like we, we had killed the computer at that point. When the mm-hmm. computer, when they went through whatever it was they went through in the Practical Joker, mm-hmm. right? Suddenly the computer is self-aware, it seems, and it's, it's playing all these pranks. Yeah. And then I believe when they went back through whatever it was that changed the computer back, did it not say it's not fair? Right. The computer right. was awake. And the thing is, you know... Most adults weren't at 8.30 on a Saturday morning. And, you know, the kids <laughs> they were playing to were kids. So you didn't yeah, really have yeah. the whole I think, therefore I am thing. But that computer was thinking. Sadly, it wasn't necessarily thinking for good, but it was thinking, right? And then yeah. and then they just shut it down. During, just during when you and I have been talking about this, I've added a new note to our notes. Oh, dear. When Picard makes his deal with Moriarty... Is Picard on some level making a deal with the Enterprise computer? Because that is who he is talking to. 
that that's yes, yes, yes. See, you, you got to exactly what I was thinking and what really has me concerned and weirded out by this episode. So, okay, the computer in the guise of the holodeck can mm-hmm. make fake objects. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it can it can make objects that are holographic representations that don't actually exist anywhere other than the holodeck. You take it outside, it disappears. Mm-hmm. But it can also create real life objects like the replicator. We've already said that it's replicator ish technology at work here as well. You know, uh, you, you could eat something on the holodeck, presumably bullets in the holodeck. Dr. Pulaski was full of crumpets. She was full of crumpets. Um, You've got a gun that went off and nearly killed that poor historian who we've never seen again um, in the big goodbye. So you have the holodeck making things that are actual objects. And in this case, I ask myself, did the computer create a living, breathing, flesh and blood human? And even if he was or was not in some respect, did he have a link up to the ship's computer? So was the computer the one asking about mortality? Right. That's yeah. Yes. <laughs> the computer. The computer was waking up. Yeah. I mean, now yeah. the, the thing is, the computer is still. I mean, the computer is still a computer, and so it's it's almost like it was running a conscious subroutine in a way, right? Because yeah, yeah. It's running life support. It's running navigation. It's running everything. Heck, we know there are at least four holodecks. So on three other holodecks, there might just be you know another ski weekend for Wesley or you know something. Right. Right. Somebody might be off on some holodeck being a merry man. It's very tough to say what's going on, you know, all over the ship. And yet it does have this little subroutine of awareness, apparently. Now, yeah. now you, of course, do bring up the whole, except we do know that this is awareness because Troy's feeling it. I mean, you're well, right, that, because yeah, you can do, yeah. I mean, you do the whole Turing test thing or you do uh, or you, you talk about Eliza. Mm-hmm. You can trick, you know, tricking a person <laughs> into mm-hmm. thinking that something is smart. Uh, depending on the level of the person, it's not the most difficult thing in the world to do. I can't, you know, I wouldn't be able to build a, a program that could do it. But people have built programs that will, you know, convince the average Joe, I would right. say. Um, when it when it reaches the level, though, that a Betazoid's like, whoa, are there any other Betazoids around? Okay, do you feel that? Do you feel that? That's like right. an emerging right. consciousness happening somewhere on this ship. And and that's kind of a a very quick moment with Deanna. Yeah. But I'm glad that you pointed it out in the recap because I feel like that that's profound. Yes. uh, About what's happening on the holodeck. Yeah. Something's coming alive down there. And then but then the question is, so if that is just a subroutine of the computer does not not mean that the enterprise computer is coming alive. Thus, when Picard makes the deal with the computer, is he basically just saying, look, (laughs) I get that there is more here than I know and I'm going to work on it. And let's let's table this for now, <laughs> but we'll see if we can if we can maybe do something something about it later. Yeah, Is that, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that that's what makes me then wonder about Moriarty. I mean, Moriarty is created as a bad guy because Moriarty was a bad guy in the Sherlock Holmes books, but Moriarty also in this guise has to be a thing to be a foil for Data. So I still do wonder, you know, what what are his intentions at the end? Or, or has the rug just been so thoroughly pulled out from under this Moriarty? Who is Moriarty as the ship's computer <laughs> or the ship's computer as Moriarty? Right. Going through this existential crisis, you know. Well, um, so we can ask just about Moriarty. OK, well, was Moriarty bad because he didn't have anything to do Yes. In the Sherlock Holmes novels, other than be bad. So would he fare better in a world where he can ponder the big questions like, why am I a holographic creation on a starship in the future? Right. But then that's the computer asking why am I a computer on the starship in the future? Well, I think you have to separate those things, right? I mean, when you ask why Moriarty is bad in the Sherlock Holmes stories, it's because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle needed a bad guy for the Sherlock Holmes stories. I yeah. mean, it, it, there is nothing more than Moriarty on the page in the real world, because in the real world, he is just words on a page. Right. 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 And played by various actors, things like that. Yeah. Now, once you actually build a, a, a program to start being Moriarty, that's that actually. So I was watching an episode of um, Democracy Now! Hmm. recently, 
as we listen to this, you know, as mm-hmm. people, as, or as we talk about it, as people listen to it, who knows how long ago, but you can never go back and find it. Um, Johan Hari is the author of a book called uh, Chasing the Scream. Hmm. And he was telling this fascinating story about experiments uh, run by a professor by the name of Bruce Alexander, who uh, works out of Vancouver. And, and it, 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 this gets a little convoluted, but stick with me. Okay. So there was there was a mid twentieth century experiment where they were testing the addictive properties of I don't remember if it was heroin or cocaine, right? What they would do is they would put a rat in a cage and they would put two water bottles in. One of the water bottles had water, and the other one had water bottles uh, had water uh, laced with either heroin or cocaine. Mm. Invariably, the rat would go for the one with the heroin or the cocaine, and it would either stay stoned or it would OD, right? So it mm-hmm. would die. And you know, people said, "Aha! This proves the addictive nature of of heroin and cocaine, and this proves that you know they're they're terrible and they're addictive and all that stuff." And certainly, I'm not advocating for heroin or cocaine. But Alexander, about 20 years later, or uh, uh, several years later, said, "Well, hold on a second. We've put this rat in a cage with two water bottles and nothing to do." So. He ran the test again, except this time he had the water bottle with the heroin, the water bottle with just the water. And then what what uh, what this uh, Hari uh, guy referred to as Rat Park. So it was like a playground and there were toys and there were other rats and there was all sorts of stuff. And what they found out was the rat, uh, generally speaking, well, never OD'd. The rats never OD'd and they rarely actually used the drug water because there was something else to do. Now, this guy was actually, I mean, his, his book, Chasing the Scream, is actually about the war on drugs and how it's been misguided and how, you know, we should whatever. And that's a whole different politic thing. What I found most fascinating was if you give people options, if you give people more, if you don't just mm-hmm. treat people like you expect them to be, you know, this thing, if you give them something to do, basically, then they might surprise you. And that's what happened with Moriarty here. He actually says it. I was a bad guy, but I am changed. Well, what changed him? He was not. He was no longer expected to be the bad guy. I mean, he was not walking around with, uh, you know, with the with the yeah, twirling the mustache. And and my my goal is to get homes because the second he wakes up, he's like, eh, you know, I could get homes, I guess. Yeah, I'm smart. I could get him. But wow, what's outside? And and what is outside anyway? It's like that whale from a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it's a fascinating idea that once you take him, once you once you remove the expectation of you know you're a bad guy, once you take once you take him out of that, then he's not necessarily going to be a bad guy. I mean, he's actually puzzled by the fact that Pulaski is enjoying the scones, and he's like, "Wow, that makes me feel good," mm-hmm. <laughs> which is mm-hmm. kind of a nutty, uh, kind of a nutty idea. I don't know. Well, I mean, but, I know but, that was that was a lot of that was a lot of other stuff there. But I just love the idea that you know, if you can just give if you give something people besides what you expect them to be, if you can give them like even just a little bit more, they may actually they may actually surprise and not be that thing that you expect. I and I think I might be able to buy that about this version of Moriarty because again his his whole world has just been completely changed. Right. Everything that is the context of his world is just gone. He's got to relearn all of that. And uh, also he's faced with the tremendous power of the people around him and the technology around him that he simply doesn't understand. But you have to temper all of that with the knowledge that this is also the computer talking through him. So the computer, which we assume that if it is something on the verge of being self-aware is also hopefully more benevolent than this literary uh, literary character that is just designed solely to go after the good guy and try to kill him. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me if I seem a bit out of sorts today. I'm just waking up. So the episode in question, uh, Elementary, Dear Data, which is actually said, name check in the episode... They say elementary dear data, so hope you took a shot when you did. <laughs> um, this is the part of the show where we ask the questions, you know, about the messages, morals, meanings, does the whole episode hold up, all that stuff. Mr. John Champion, uh, does elementary dear data hold up as far as you're concerned? By the way, before I get to that. What? Um, <laughs> I asked you a question, mister. All right, go ahead. Before you get to that. Um, and it's too bad that we don't have Curtis Armstrong, our, our resident Sherlock Holmes superfan. Uh, but I believe that I read that um, Elementary, My Dear Watson, or Elementary Dear Watson, was actually created for the Sherlock Holmes 
films that it wasn't actually in the books. Really? So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm not quite the super fan of Sherlock Holmes as I am for things like Star Trek maybe so i'm not not entirely sure on that one uh but does the episode hold up well ken i have to tell you that when we got to this episode i knew that it would i knew that it would spark a big conversation because Mm -hmm. i just knew that there are ideas in here that you and i both find very intriguing and i'm glad to say that upon watching it for our show which is i i can't even remember how many times it is that i watched it even though that you sit there and kind of pick apart the plot holes and then i got to throw you kind of the monkey wrench of well there would have been this other way to end it and this this change (laughs) for the character um i i think it holds up really quite beautifully it's it's full of tension and we get to play with this technology again um that we know is going to come back again because I think they've all decided that we all love a good holodeck story at this point. And this is so early in the run for next gen. Um, I think it holds up really nicely. Now, the things that I like here, um, I'm going to go back to Dr. Pulaski. This is the kind of thing that I like to see Dr. Pulaski doing. And again, I'm not defending the behavior by saying she's super nice about it or anything. She's certainly rude and she, she's certainly kind of needling both Data and LaForge by her behavior. But the thing that's interesting about it is that she's responding to, as we say, manufactured intelligence the way that many of us probably would. She's putting Data to the test to see the limits of his creative ability. This is fascinating that here's, you know, again, what what we said a couple of episodes ago, this is essentially a toaster to her, Mm -hmm. but she's going to play along with the game to see how this works. And and I think that's kind of a a cool thing, even if we might think that her attitude is a little um, unevolved about it. Um, Now, I I think that you and I are going to both talk about the ending because I think we both had a similar thought about the very end of the episode. So before we both get to that, Ken, what do you think about the episode holding up as a production, as a piece of Star Trek? Oh, yeah, I think it's fantastic. Um, uh, The mind bleepery part part of it, Mm -hmm. what's interesting is you could certainly sit there in 1980 what 9 when this 88 88 yeah you could definitely sit there in 1988 and go oh yeah well one day we'll have to face those questions and you know you would say that in 88 mm. i have no idea what the future is facing right now but we are certainly closer to needing to face those questions today than we were then and so that that actually makes it kind of a a, a really fascinating a fascinating idea. But, I mean, even, yeah. if, even if we were like 50, 60, 70 years away from that, and maybe we are 50, 60, 70 years away from that, who knows how soon we're going to have to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a great bit of mind blapery. It's absolutely fantastic. The acting is, I mean, Lestrade's over the top, but Lestrade's also on screen for maybe 45 seconds. Right. Data, I actually found myself a tiny bit annoyed at how campy Spiner was when he was doing the the Sherlock voice and the Sherlock uh, cadence and all of that. Mm-hmm. Although it pays off beautifully when when they finally get to Moriarty and and Data realizes, oh, we're not playing. He's not playing anymore. Moriarty's yeah. still talking like Moriarty. Occasionally, um, Jordy's still doing a little bit of the Watson whatever, and Data's just like, yeah, th- um, we need we need to we need to move along. And yeah. I, and so so even his over the top performance ends up serving the episode well because then when he stops being over the top you're like oh oh this is real or this is serious anyway yes i mean not surprising that it was nominated for awards for the art direction because that was very well done down to the (laughs) i love the (laughs) fact that when moriarty realizes he can control the ship he can still only control it the way he understands controlling things so he's basically got a steampunk operation (laughs) (laughs) i love that for the enterprise like ah i can control this ship but that would obviously require a boiler and a giant lever and some right (laughs) Right. and pretty much what he can do is he can make the ship shimmy like for a second and that's about it so there's yeah. a lot of stuff as far as um yeah I would say this episode way holds up oh plus it's got my my girlfriend in the first thirty seconds oh yeah yeah right 
All right. Anne Ramsey, not that one. The other one. Not that okay. one. The other. Yeah. <laughs> Anne Elizabeth Ramsey. And uh, the uh, the Anne Elizabeth Ramsey. <laughs> be the way right, to say right. It. You uh, know, there's another thing that we didn't really hit upon, but we we talked about it before when we talked about the big goodbye. There's something kind of cool here about this glimpse into how people in the 24th century, according to Star Trek, play how they escape and have fun, um, whether it's Geordi building a model or going to a holodeck and putting on a costume and immersing oneself in a story. Mm-hmm. So instead of watching a movie or when well, we know that Picard reads books, um, but, you know, again, are we back to this idea that this is this is gaming? This is a video game of the future. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to be a good actor to do it. <laughs> you know, sometimes a holodeck will call you out on that. Sometimes it won't if it sees you in the right costume or the wrong costume for the period or interacting correctly or incorrectly. Um, And, you know, again, I go back to that idea that we had in The Big Goodbye that the computer is sort of anticipating but also messing with you a little bit in that respect. It just happens that in this one, because everything has gone haywire, then they, they are that much more immersed in the story. So I found all of that to just be a, a great sort of look at what, what, what do we do when we need a little escape from our incredible technology? Well, we get to use that technology for even more interesting and complex escape. <laughs> like, like, like if you were on, t- say, Talos 4, <laughs> you know. Hmm. We use the technology to go back to simpler times, as, mm-hmm. uh, as, uh, as Mr. LaForge, you know, says everybody wants. What about the messages? Um, Well, (laughs) I think that's kind of a tough one Um, because, again, this episode is about play and it's about having fun and it's about testing data. Mm -hmm. Um, But you said early on, and I said that I agree with you, that data fails the test. No, I didn't say data fails the test. I said she didn't prove it. Oh, okay. Well, all right. I don't know the data failed the test. Honestly, I find I find her logic flawed because she says data doesn't have a soul or he doesn't get the soul. Mm. I, you know, and we I think I've talked about this here before. I mean, she is bothered by the fact that all data is is response to input. Right. 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 So she and yeah. I know she has this idea that she's got. I know she has this idea that she's got some ineffable something, and I know a lot of people listening to this have that idea, too. And my personal feeling has always been we just don't have any idea how many inputs we've received. Yeah. But we're responding to our inputs. I mean, we are. And and there may also be a soul and bully if there is. That's fantastic. I'm not saying there's not necessarily. I'm just saying she doesn't prove anything. And her the, 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 the soul of her argument is, you know, because he's responding to zeros and ones well so she she is they're just they're just read differently yeah but she's checking out his ability to think abstractly you know the the original test where he's sort of in there and he can pick apart what the mystery is because he's already read it Mm. and he's sort of already planning ahead but i mean look at the end it takes captain picard to come in and kind of pull a kirk he's got to talk down the computer Mm -hmm. this time in the guise of moriarty but he's really talking down the computer Mm -hmm. and then we're left with a little bit of sympathy for this moriarty slash computer creation data is really just relegated to standing in the corner while picard does all the work yeah, but that could honestly be um, – that could just be org chart stuff. I mean, once Data realizes that the ship is in danger, then he has to go to the captain. I mean, that's because that is above his pay grade and that's above his rank. If he knows that what he does on the holodeck could literally get the ship destroyed, that is not a decision that he is able to make unless Picard and Riker are off the ship, in which case, I mean, then then command does actually fall to him, right? Is he third or fourth in command? I can't remember. He's probably he's third, third or fourth in command. Yeah, right? somewhere so, around there. Yeah. So he's not far from being able to make those decisions, but when he realizes that it's no longer a game, when he realizes that there's actual that, – that, you know, a thousand plus people, their lives are on the line potentially, he has to go to the captain at that point. 
Interesting. Yeah. Well, because see, I don't know if he knew that everybody was in danger at that point that he couldn't have just stuck around a little bit to go. Hmm. Oh, I disagree. I, I, think I, I created this mess. I should clean it up. Now, Jordy created that mess, though. See, here's the thing. Jordy is actually the only one who's testing data at this point. Pulaski is fine with her preconceived notions of data, and hopefully that will change. But once data fails, as far as she's concerned, fraud. You knew because it was part of this and part of this. Fraud. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. And data's like, no, no, no. I know because of this. She stops talking to Data at that point. She turns to Jordy and she's like, see, your friend is just a bucket of bolts. That's all he is. And, you know, I'm sorry for you, Jordy, not even addressing Data at all at that point because there is no. Now, what's interesting is her time with Moriarty may actually end up softening her towards Data because Mm -hmm. she's I mean, she apologizes to him. She tells Moriarty, oh, listen. Next time we see each other, I'm going to be old and time won't have passed for you. And he's like, ah, but I'll still like you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> who knows? Maybe this will actually soften her towards towards data somewhere on the way. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. We'll I don't know. See. So, you know, it, it's a message here that uh, at least as far as Moriarty is concerned, that uh, maybe he's really not that much of a bad guy. Maybe he was just having an existential crisis and uh, – didn't have enough to do when he was faced with homes. No, the existential crisis <laughs> is what makes him a good guy. I actually do like the idea of that message, honestly. I don't know if it's actually a message. It is just something that it made me think of. But, I mean, the second Moriarty gets taken out of his, well, you're the bad guy mold. Yeah. The second he has a chance to do something else, he does, which is kind yeah. of a neat. That's sort of a neat message. Um, and then, of course, there's that awful thing that Jordy tells Data. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if that's a message or not, but it's one that I can't seem to escape when I. I, I no, nah, I, I don't think that is an intended message of the show. Really, because I, he I know said that stuck the out. line out loud. That that might be a that that's that's a Jordy message. He straightforward said the line out loud. It's a Jordy message for Data. I, right. I think the the played out message <laughs> that we get to end the show with. <laughs> Is that, yes. <laughs> is that Moriarty gets to reassess. But again, we're left with this huge question about that being Moriarty reassessing or the computer becoming alive and yeah. potentially just killing the crew. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that computer is going to do now. But that computer is, uh, is seriously got a changed relationship with the crew, I would say, after this point. Oh, I doubt it. Remember what happened after the practical Joker? Nothing. <laughs> somewhere in the back yeah. of his mind Picard may be going you know I may one day have to have a talk with the computer alright yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll have data do that, that might be yeah good. right there you go yeah for, for and then he puts everybody do. in danger again yeah that crazy <laughs> robot <laughs> well I would say that those messages I would say that the show holds up I, overall this is it's just so much fun but there's a lot for your brain to chew on in this episode. And Ken, you know, it's just like Star Trek keeps coming, you know? know. It's like we do one, and then there's another one right around the corner for us. So we only have a week, and then we meet the outrageous Okona. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Next week, an episode that can't possibly be as cool as one about a computer gaining sentience. If you ask me. And transmission. <laughs>